unusual experiment is about to be filmed in the studios of City TV in Toronto. The stars of this show are eight people sitting around a table. Off to the side on a raised bench are three men observing the experiment. Reverend Lindsay King, psychologist Joel Whitten, and Dr. George Owen, scientific director for the Toronto Society of Psychical Research. The studio director gives the signal that the experiment may begin. Participants lay their hands flat on the table and begin calling out a name. Are you there, Philip? I want to see you, Philip. Soon the table begins to rise, as if it had a life of its own, to the surprise of the participants. Shortly afterwards, it seems that Philip no longer wishes to remain in the middle of the room. As he heads toward Reverend King, the table moves with him. And the eight mediums have a hard time keeping their hands in place. Once the table stops, one of the participants suggests to the clergyman that he say hello to Philip. Uh, hello, Philip. The table rises in response. The only problem is that Philip doesn't exist and never did. Philip is an imaginary ghost. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's story, The Philip Experiment, or How to Create Your Own Ghost. You can have your chuckle now at that secondary title, How to Create Your Own Ghost, but by the end of this story, you'll be giving that a second thought. Science has no desire to prove the existence of mind over matter, but if that day should ever come, they'll be trying this one out for themselves. We've all done do-it-yourself projects. We call them DIYs. It might be anything. Making your own sidewalk, building a treehouse, repairing your car, fixing the plumbing. You get the idea. But have you ever heard of creating your own ghost? We'll share the audio to two unique videos today along with our story. In the world of the paranormal, most of us tend to hear a lot and believe just a little. Every now and then, certain stories get my attention. You might remember the story we did about the amateur hypnotist who, as a party trick, hypnotized a Denver housewife who, over a period of a few weeks, revealed a lengthy story of her past life in Ireland in the 19th century. Only she had never lived in Ireland. Her name in Ireland was Bridie Murphy in another century. And that remains as one of my favorite stories here at 1001 Heroes. The story had a ring of truth in it, and I was drawn in, becoming more convinced when a newspaper man was sent to Ireland to try to confirm her story. As it turned out, the small details, including addresses and names, were not correct. But descriptions of roads, landscape, areas, her childhood neighborhood, and a number of other things were pretty accurate. So were this woman's abilities to speak with a genuine Irish lilt during her hypnotic sessions, and her perfect Irish jig. I still think that hypnotic regression is valuable. The Denver housewife, Virginia Teague, wasn't looking for media attention. Today's story is basically a footnote I discovered while researching unexplained mysteries. This is the story of an informal group of people interested in paranormal research who apparently stumbled onto something when they tried to create their own ghost before a seance. And this seance, although filmed with a home camera and poorly set up initially to withstand the scrutiny it would receive, actually succeeded in creating some shocking responses, according to witnesses there. Later, the experiment was performed under much higher scrutiny, again achieving some very surprising results. The story is largely unknown, and it is true. It has been witnessed numerous times by a wide assortment of people, including the media, and it has been videotaped. The story is often called the Philip Phenomenon, or the Philip Experiment, and it did inspire two heavily fictionalized movies, as well as serious videos that exist from the group's efforts. I'll provide links to those in the show notes here. The story begins in 1972, 
when members of the Toronto Society for Psychical Research began an experiment to determine if they could create a ghost and study how the power of suggestion could affect the results. The group was eager to know if they could create a totally fictitious character. That's where the name Philip comes in. A man whose name, history, and life story was completely made up and somehow make contact with it. Yep, sounds crazy to me too. Personally, I do believe from experience that there is another side to our existence here. I don't recommend crossing over for anyone, nor do I recommend seances. But people are going to do what they're going to do. My theory is you don't know what you'll be bringing home with you. What this doctor wanted to prove was not that ghosts exist, but that human beings can direct their concentration in a way that can move matter, if it's done the right way. The group in this experiment apparently uncovered a way to bring what seemed to be a spirit across. Numerous times, and you could even say with regularity. And it was a very unusual process. What makes it different is that it has a number of witnesses, and the experiment was performed many times with similar results with different people present. The more I dug into the story, the more fascinating it became. I've seen their best-known video and dug into the story from every angle, at every source I could find, and there's an incredible message here. The man behind the craziness was mathematical geneticist Dr. A.R.G. Owen, the group's chief paranormal researcher. He purposely gathered a group of eight people who were interested in the paranormal, but claimed no psychic abilities on their own. By 1973, a group of eight members of the Toronto Society for Psychical Research, TSPR, in Toronto, Canada, decided to address by experiment certain questions that arise with regard to psychokinetic phenomena that occur during mediumship sittings, such as rapping noises and table levitations. They wanted to know, do they require the presence of at least one individual gifted with psychic powers? Can they be produced in full light, allowing them to be filmed? Are they caused by a disembodied spirit, or rather by unconscious psychokinetic activity on the part of the participants themselves? The group proposed to recreate the conditions of a spiritualist seance, with key differences. No one would be present who claimed to have mediumistic or psychic powers, and attempts would be made to contact a fictional entity created for the purpose, rather than a genuine deceased individual. Also, the common attitude of the seance was to keep it light-hearted, not at all resembling the deeply serious, dark, and intense atmosphere you would expect at a seance. The group's original members were Al, a self-employed heating engineer whose hobbies were scouting and photography, Lorne, an industrial engineer, a creative and artistic person who studied Oriental philosophy and ancient history, Andy, Lorne's wife, who shared his interest in astronomy and was artistic, she ended up drawing a picture of Philip. Bernice, an accountant who was widely read and interested in philosophy. Dorothy, a housewife trained in bookkeeping and accounting whose main hobby was scouting. Sydney, the youngest member, a sociology student taking time off to work as a salesman and travel. Sue, chairman of the Canadian chapter of Mensa and a former nurse with many interests. She originated the story of Philip. Iris, wife of Dr. A.R.G. Owen, director of the New Horizons Research Foundation, who also co-founded TSPR with her husband. Her career also involved nursing, social work, and leadership in these fields. She is the primary author of a 1976 book, Conjuring Up Philip. If you want a copy, it goes for about $200 at Amazon. Dr. Joel Witten, a psychologist, was also present at many of the meetings as an observer and overseer. The choice of these people, who came from all walks of life and did not know each other, was good, I believe, because this group was in it for the long haul. They were there for curiosity and for science, and they were working under the umbrella and leadership of a scientist with a specific goal, so they were serious about what they were doing. This wasn't, for example, a bunch of college kids having a seance for some beer and some fun. Dr. Owen had formulated a plan, a very unusual plan, which put the ghost before the seance, so to speak, instead of the seance before the ghost. The task for the group was to give the ghost a name, physical characteristics, and a complete background story. 
According to the doctor, it was important that the spirit be totally made up, with no strong ties to any historical figure. They worked up this description, and one of their members brought him to life in a sketch. Another member was assigned to invent the fictional ghost story. They gave the ghost the name Philip, Philip Aylford, who was an aristocrat, an Englishman, born in 1624. He was a staunch supporter of the king, and was knighted at the tender age of 16, and went on to make a name for himself in the military. He married a beautiful daughter of a nobleman who lived nearby, her name being Dorothea. Sadly, her appearance was deceiving, as her personality was cold and unyielding. Philip couldn't divorce her as he was Catholic, so he found escape by constantly riding around the grounds of his estate. One day he came across a gypsy camp. There he soon found true love in the arms of a raven-haired gypsy named Margot, whose dark eyes seemed to be able to peer into his soul. He brought her to Diddington Manor, his family home, and hid her in the gatehouse near the stable. But Dorothea soon discovered her husband's affair and retaliated by accusing Margot of witchcraft. And yes, that was vogue there in 1650. Being feckless and without much of a spine, Philip did not step forward to defend Margot, and she was burned to the stake. After the death of his beloved, Philip was tormented with guilt and killed himself in 1654 at the tender age of 30. So now the tale was written. Their ghost had a name and a history, and the group began meeting regularly. Dr. Owen was one step closer to proving his thesis that human subjects can communicate with spirits solely through expectations of human will. Meaning, as I see it, not having to rely on the actual ghosts of past persons. I would have thought that that was exciting enough. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our ghostly experiment. I repeat, do not try this at home, but I know some of you will anyway. Just don't blame me when you start seeing things moving around your house at night. By September of 1972, the tale had been written and the group began meeting regularly. These meetings apparently lasted about one year and vary as to their nature and purpose, but there were no seances. They would just discuss Philip and meditate on details of his life. They memorized the story and tried to visualize Philip, making him as real as they could in their minds. They agreed on all aspects of his appearance, personality, and preferences, and Andy produced a drawing of him. The group decided to make an attempt to cause Philip to manifest in his physical form. Only then, they hypothesized, could he be summoned. They were getting deadly serious about this character, enough so that they agreed to meet weekly for sessions for one year. They sat in a circle around the table with the drawing of Philip in the center, or a piece of illuminized cardboard on the floor instead of the table, in the hope of causing Philip to materialize on the cardboard. These sittings were never in darkness, but rather lit by colored lights or candlelight. After a period of quiet meditation, they would share what they had felt or experienced during meditation, then meditate again. The length of meditation increased as the group members became used to it. In discussions, they continued to develop Philip as a character, solidifying their collective notions of his personality. In time, they found themselves becoming convinced that he had really had lived. But a full year passed with no results. Right around this time, Iris Owen, the wife of Dr. George Owen, read papers by psychic researchers Smith, Hunt, and Batchelder that described techniques used during 19th century seances. The participants in these examples sat round in a relaxed and jolly atmosphere, singing songs and hymns, making jokes, and carrying on a lively banter, all while involved in a seance. Accordingly, this group changed their approach, although continuing now to work in full light and without designating one person as a medium. Then, late in 1973, it was determined that seances would begin in a darkened room, sitting around a table with appropriate music and objects that might have been used in the period by Philip and his family, had he existed. Everyone in the group was serious about the project. They had really created a Philip. Their minds were in the time period, and the setting, if not in a real English castle, was at least given some actual artifacts to bring the mood closer to reality. 
"'There is something about the intensity of the focus in a seance, "'and I've been covering some of this in Arthur Conan Doyle's writings. "'He was an avowed spiritualist, along with his wife. "'He did actually speak with past family members at those seances, "'with the help of mediums, throughout years of his connection with spiritualism.' It was from the spiritualist seances of the late 19th century that Dr. Owen assembled his ideas of how to conduct successful seances. At one of the Toronto group seances, their ghost suddenly began to make himself known. He did not appear in any way. The group's seance rules were all hands on the tabletop. There were no tricks or pranks to be pulled. It could be fun. People were talking, even joking. But their preparation had been long, and their focus was there. There were no gadgets or attachments, no manufactured knee bumps or foot bumps. They would ask questions which required a yes or a no. They asked him to make a noise for yes, two noises for no. At one point, they asked if his name was Philip. They heard a tap on top of the table. All their hands were fixed to the tabletop. A single sharp rap hit the tabletop. At that point, some eyes opened wide, and they just turned to look at each other in amazement. Here's a portion of the audio from that video to kind of bring you into this. It's very noisy for a seance, definitely not something you would expect, but that's how they planned it, and that's what worked. And, of course, then we all accused each other of pushing it, naturally. Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, we, we couldn't believe that it would move. Well, it really itself. happened? You couldn't believe and it yourself? We, oh, no, not at okay. first. And, in, in fact, the first few months we were watching each other like hawks, and uh, if, if anybody's finger moved the slightest bit, you're pushing, you know, this sort of thing. Hello, are you still there? Oh, no, no. no. Yeah. Yeah. He loves his beer, perhaps. Why don't you like Philip, Philip, if you perform, you should have a nice big pint of beer. Would you like that? Good. Yes. Now, that was the loudest rap of the yes. evening. Yes. 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 He loves beer. He loves yes. beer. Yes. He's on that table. At one point, the participants began feeling a presence. There were table vibrations, breezes, unexplained echoes and rapping sounds which matched responses to questions about Philip's life, and often the rapping sound would occur under that person's hands. At one point the table tilted on a single leg, and at other times moved across the room. This is shown on the video as well. The Philip phenomenon was taking on a life of its own. Philip began to show a personality, exuding emotions to certain questions that changed the atmosphere within the room. It became frightening at times, but not threatening. They went on for a number of sessions. It happened sometimes with as few as four members present. Most remarkably, Philip was able to demonstrate some physical manifestations, such as making objects move, turning lights on and off at the group's request, and performing incredible feats with the table, which, as we just said, shifted and tilted, danced on one leg, and even moved across the room. No, there were no strings or wires attached, no fishing lines attached, no props, and no one was making it happen. From that point on, Philip seemed to be present at the sessions, rapping in answer to questions, in time sometimes with songs, and in a way that sounded like laughter when jokes were told. Using one rap for yes and two for no, the group had him tell his story to see if this would match their creative conception, and this proved generally to be the case. Any new material could usually be traced to an earlier comment by a group member, as was also the case when Philip gave historically inaccurate answers, which could almost always be traced to incorrect knowledge on the part of the group. The group remained aware that they had created Philip, but came to treat him as a group member. They would greet him at each session, and he would wrap the table under each individual member's hand. There were other physical manifestations, for instance, the colored lights would flicker on request, and particular movements of the table could be elicited. These movements became increasingly varied, as mentioned. It would tilt up on two legs, or on one leg. It would rock in time to music, 
or slide toward anyone new entering the room. It would revolve in a waltzing movement, or even chase people, while group members tried to keep their hands on it, not to guide it, but just to show their honesty and to keep contact, thinking maybe it was their fingers' contact that aided in the connection between all of their minds. Eventually, it even levitated entirely. On one occasion, they placed a piece of candy on the table, which subsequently tilted to a 45-degree angle without falling off. When they tilted the table themselves, it fell off in the normal way. During the summer of 1974, when the group took a brief break from its weekly meetings, some of the members experienced poltergeist phenomena in their own homes. Which is why I say, have your fun, but don't be surprised who or what you might be bringing home with you. Through rapt conversations with Philip, his dramatic story was much expanded with added details. And the Philip phenomenon didn't stop there. In an attempt to show the Philip experiment was replicable, another group comprised of entirely different members of the TSPR similarly created and visualized a character named Lilith, a French-Canadian girl who became a member of the French Resistance in World War II and was captured and shot as a spy. Within five weeks of beginning sittings, they began to get motions of the table and then raps, which answered questions in the character of the fictional girl. As a result of this second experiment, Owens asserts that any group of people can acquire the ability to generate such a phenomena. The Philip experiment also drew the attention of TV stations and other media. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation filmed an hour-long documentary entitled Philip, the Imaginary Ghost, which is now available in DVD format, as I understand. The Toronto station, City TV, broadcast an episode of the program World of the Unexplained about the Philip experiment, and we've played a portion of that here. We'll play that in full at the end of the story. It can now be seen on YouTube. We're putting a link to the City TV broadcast also at YouTube in our show notes. And that includes a full levitation of the table and some very forceful raps as answers. Another video, of which we shared audio here, shows raps and motions of the table and features interviews with Iris Owen and Joel Witten. We'll also leave a link to that in the show notes for you. The Philip group felt that they'd achieved their goal of proving that psychokinetic phenomena could be produced without the aid of one naturally gifted person acting as a medium, and in full light, even under the bright lights used for television shooting. The third question, whether such phenomena were caused by disembodied spirits or the minds or subconscious of the living participants, was a little more difficult. The group did not go so far as to claim that all apparitions originate subconsciously in the minds of living people, and have no independent reality. Instead, they saw their experiences in the context of psychokinetic or poltergeist phenomena. Owen hypothesized that the energy arose from the combined focus of the group members on one object. When members were sick, the phenomena would manifest more weakly. According to Owen, there was no question in the minds of the group members that Philip's personality was a composite of their own, since he was their creation. Their book, Conjuring Up Philip, includes Witten's psychological explanation rooted in Jungian concepts. You psychology majors know who Charles Jung was. He created some of the best-known psychological concepts, including synchronicity, archetypal phenomena, the collective unconscious, and the psychological complex. His theory of the collective unconscious was rooted in the belief that human beings are connected to each other and their ancestors through a shared set of experiences, and that we use this collective unconsciousness to give meaning to the world. The book Conjuring Up Philip includes Witten's psychological explanation rooted in Jungian concepts. By consciously attempting to be childlike through playful behavior, he writes, the group members regress to a childlike view of reality that lacks knowledge of the laws of physics and simply states, if I want it to happen, it will. They are also acting out subconscious conflicts, Witten opines, with Dr. A.R.G. Owen taking the symbolic place of the father whom the children want to please, and the group's Electra and Oedipal conflicts being reenacted through Philip and Dorothea provide energy for the phenomena. Philip's raps were recorded and translated into sound charts by Dr. Alan Gauld 
of the Society for Psychical Research in England, showing that they had a different acoustic quality than normally created raps. The force behind the table motions could be quite powerful, as was discovered by a group of physicists and psychologists who invited the group to Cleveland, Ohio, for a demonstration. One physicist sat on the table and was thrown off fairly violently during one of the sessions there in Cleveland. The nature of the force generating the motion, however, has yet to be determined. An interesting aspect of the experiment arose when Sid jokingly told Philip that if he didn't answer, the group might send him away. The phenomena virtually stopped, and the group had to work to bring him back next session, fortunately with success. This episode seemed to confirm the view that an artificial entity, having been created by a thought, could also be destroyed by one, offering reassurance that if Philip somehow became dangerous, he could easily be removed. According to Owen, the Philip experiment seemed to have a therapeutic effect on his participants. The group became like family, as he described it, very close-knit and happy. According to Andy, she attained increased social growth and self-confidence. Shyness on social occasions seems to have disappeared. It could be said that we have become more aware of other people and of the world around us. Now, this is an interesting take, I think. That Philip was a creation of the group's collective imagination was evident in his limitations. Although he could accurately answer questions about events and people of his time period, it didn't appear to be information that the group was unaware of. In other words, Philip's responses were coming from their subconscious, their own minds. Some members thought they heard whispers in response to questions, but no voice was ever captured on tape. Philip's psychokinetic powers, however, were amazing and completely unexplained. If the group asked Philip to dim the lights, they would dim instantly. When asked to restore the lights, he would oblige. The table around which the group sat was almost always the focal point of peculiar phenomena. After feeling a cool breeze blow across the table, they asked Philip if he could cause it to start and stop at will. He could, and he did. The group noticed that the table itself felt different to the touch whenever Philip was present, having a subtle electric or alive quality. On a few occasions, a fine mist formed over the center of the table. Most astonishing, the group reported that the table would sometimes be so animated that it would rush over to meet latecomers to the session, or even trap members in the corner of the room. So here's another slant. Maybe their Philip was a sort of artificial intelligence produced by their subconscious, but able to think for itself. Or maybe he really was a ghost, for all they knew, someone who died within the past year and just wanted in for the fun. The climax of the experiment was a seance conducted before a live audience of 50 people. The session was also filmed as part of a television documentary. Fortunately, Philip was not stage-shy and performed above expectations. Besides table wrappings, other noises around the room, and making lights blink off and on, the group actually attained a full levitation of the table. It rose only a half inch above the floor, but this incredible feat was witnessed by the group and the film crew. Although the Philip experiment gave the Owen group far more than they ever imagined possible, it was never able to attain one of their original goals, to have the spirit of Philip actually materialize. Maybe the doctor was disappointed as well, because that would have proved that ghosts or apparitions are just products of human consciousness and don't have any power of their own. We mentioned the Lilith experiment. There were also other similar experiments which conjured up such entities as Sebastian, a medieval alchemist, and even Axel, a man from the future. That would have been interesting, I think. All of them were completely fictional, yet all produced unexplained communication through their unique raps. A Sydney, Australia group attempted a similar test with the Skippy experiment. The six participants created the story of Skippy Cartman, a 14-year-old Australian girl. The group reports that Skippy communicated with them through raps and scratching sounds. And by the way, for you Down Under fans, the imaginary Skippy was a 16-year-old that lived near Dubbo, New South Wales. I hope I'm saying Dubbo right. New South Wales, Australia. 
She attended Catholic school and developed a crush on her teacher, Brother Monk. The two carried on a secret love affair that might have lasted had it not been for the unexpected pregnancy. When the holy man learned of her condition, he strangled her and hid her body under the floorboards of a shack on her parents' property. By the time investigators found her body, the murderer had been moved to another parish far away. That Australian group met once a week for five months, but saw no results. Frustrated, they dispensed with the agency's skippy and began sitting around a light, three-legged card table. Finally, success. The first night, they heard a light tapping noise from somewhere inside the table. The second sitting brought startling results as well. After 15 minutes, the table began to move, seemingly of its own accord. Soon it was spinning around, balanced on one leg, dragging participants who tried to keep their hands on it behind it. There are some accounts of people through time that have created entities with pure willpower. These entities are called thought forms or tulpas, T-U-L-P-A-S. A thought form may be understood as a psycho-spiritual complex of mind, energy, or consciousness manifested either consciously or unconsciously by a sentient being or in concert. One of these accounts came from a person named Alexandra David Neal, and this brings an interesting side story. When Alexandra David Neal journeyed through Tibet, one of the many mystical techniques she studied was that of a tulpa creation. A tulpa, according to traditional Tibetan doctrine, is an entity created by an act of imagination, rather like the fictional characters of a novelist, except that tulpas are not written down. David Neal became so interested in the concept that she decided to create one. The method involved was essentially intense concentration and visualization. David Neal's tulpa began its existence as a plump, benign little monk, similar to Friar Tuck. It was at first entirely subjective, but gradually, with practice, she was able to visualize the tulpa out there like an imaginary ghost flitting about the real world. In time, the vision grew in clarity and substance, until it was indistinguishable from physical reality, a sort of self-induced hallucination. But the day came when the hallucination slipped from her conscious control. She discovered that the monk would appear from time to time when she had not willed it. Furthermore, her friendly little figure was slimming down and taking on a distinctly sinister aspect. Eventually her companions, who were unaware of the mental disciplines she was practicing, began to ask about the stranger who had turned up in their camp, a clear indication that a creature which, which was no more than solidified imagination had definite objective reality. At this point, she decided things had gone too far and applied different Lamaeus techniques to reabsorb the creature into her own mind. The tulpa proved very unwilling to face destruction in this way so that the process took several weeks and left its creator exhausted. Interesting story. There are a few more stories that have some connection with this topic. Worthy of consideration is the fact that ghosts are not limited to apparitions of the dead, but also of the living. For instance, when Terry Waite was held hostage in Beirut, he often liked to imagine places back home that he felt especially attached to. The astonishing thing is that on numerous occasions during his captivity, at least two people recall seeing a ghost-like figure of Terry Waite walking in these same locations. So what are we to make of these incredible experiments? While some would conclude that they prove that ghosts do not exist, that such things are in our minds only, others say that our unconscious could be responsible for ghosts some of the time. They do not, in fact cannot prove, that there are no ghosts. Another point of view is that even though Philip was completely fictional, the Owen group really did contact the spirit world. A playful, or perhaps demonic, some would argue, spirit took the opportunity of these seances to act as Philip and produce the extraordinary psychokinetic phenomena that was recorded. In any case, the experiments proved that paranormal phenomena are quite real, and like most such investigations, they leave us with more questions than answers about the world in which we live. The only certain conclusion is that there is much to our existence that is still unexplained. I hope you enjoyed this little-known story, 
and that it made you think of the possibilities out there. There is much we don't know about human consciousness or about the world that exists beyond the veil, but I never get tired of exploring it. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We always enjoy reviews, and today I'd like to share some reviews from different shows as well as this one to kind of wake some of you guys up to the possibility of maybe trying some of our other shows. I know many of you already do. The first one, Twin Sisters, 1001 Heroes, 5 Stars. Great podcast. Slight pronunciation correction. Goliath is pronounced Goliad, with emphasis on the goal sound. And yep, I remember that now. But when I see that word, G-O-L-I-A-D, I just naturally say Goliad. I can't help it. But you're right, it's Goliad. That's that little town in Texas. Down from Sib 71, Apple Podcast U.S. This is great storytelling, and that's for 1001 Stories for the Road. And this one was written June 21st. That's while we were just doing the last episode of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. We've had more reviews for that story, Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar, than any story we've done in the past three years. Just It's just had phenomenal success. Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar at 1001 Stories for the Road. The review, five stars, says the best. I love this. That's from Ed358, Apple Podcast US. Thank you, Ed. And this one, this one's for the, this one says outstanding. And this is for 1001 Best of Jack London, five stars. This 1001 podcast series is an outstanding collection and well worth listening to. I used to listen to topical podcasts, but realized that while those podcasts had their place, they were just adding too much stress in my life. I found the 1001 series and found stories that are exciting and just classic. A much more rewarding experience to listen to these classic tales. The Jack London series is my favorite, and it is great. My day typically starts with a three-mile walk and listening to a 1001 tale. Thanks for the great 1001 series. That was from Scully, 2019, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Marie, 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Five stars. Fantastic story. Great narration. A wonderful hero and heroine. Despicable villains. That one from Maximum Mary, Apple Podcast Canada. Maximum Mary, thank you. Yeah, Marie is one of my favorite stories we've ever done. And it's kind of hidden over there at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. But what a story. Thanks for your kind review. And this one, back to 1001 Heroes. Great podcast. Five stars. I'm British. I appreciate freedom and understand politics of the free nations is our biggest disappointment. I love history, no matter what the story and who has created. This podcast is clearly read and very varied on its subjects. Well worth getting into listening. That one from KKNS 5693 Apple Podcast. Great Britain, and thank you so much for that review. Wonderful review for 1001 Heroes. And here's one for Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. 1001 Stories for the Road. Five stars. Tarzan books are written well. I really appreciate John reading these books. I didn't realize there were multiple Tarzan books. I can't wait to hear it each week. Thanks for the good reading, John. Down from Mike Osteel, Apple Podcast U.S. Oh, here's one for Black Beauty. That's over at 1001 Greatest Love Stories right now. Five stars. Really enjoying the book Black Beauty. I like the story from the horse's point of view. I didn't realize they forced horses to hold their heads up. Thanks for the good reading, John. That one from M.A. Apple Podcast U.S. Oh, and this one, Wonderful Stories, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Five stars. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to the stories, especially the older ones that are not so popular. Our culture is desperate for the values in times gone by. We foolishly believe we are advancing. Thanks for all the 1001 podcasts. That one from Mary, Apple Podcast, Canada. The last 10 or 15 reviews just hit every, just hit all of our podcasts, save just a few. There's one for 1001 stories from the Old West called Great. Fantastic show. Well done. That one from Brian Jets. And 1001 interviews for 1001 History's Best Storytellers, where we do all our interviews. John is the best interviewer, and the stories are of great interest. That one from Irish Gal, 333, Apple Podcast. He gives both sides of the story. Keep up the great work, John. That one from Yonkers, New York. 
So that gives you a sample of the kind of reviews that we receive here. They they go straight to my heart. I appreciate it very much. And, th- and they make everything we do here worth it all. Thank you so much for taking the time to send those reviews. I know that it's not easy to do, and I know they take some time to do. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for being with us. Hope you enjoyed the story today. really makes you think about what's out there. And are ghosts created by our own conscious? Or do they have their own skin in the game, so, so to speak? We've all been trying to figure it out since the beginning of man. That's it for today. I'm going to play those recordings in just a minute. First, I want to tell you, today is Wednesday, June 28th. It was two days ago when I first put on air conditioning here in our home in Virginia Beach. And when I do that, I set it to around 79 or 80. It was a 90-plus degree day. And I had forgotten that in my home office, I shouldn't expose the top of my head to the cold air vent above, especially the first time I put it on for the year. Because when that happens and when I do that, I lose the timber in my voice for days, sometimes a week, sometimes a little more. And I think that's pretty much what this past episode showed if my voice sounds tinny. If it does, I apologize. I really do try to bring you the best in recording quality and do the best job I can editing these shows to make them enjoyable and presentable. So if this one sounds tinny, I'm sorry, but there's my cheap excuse, and it's true. Now for the recorded version of those two audios. Thanks for joining us. And please remember, too, if you want to see them, I've got the links in the show notes. Let's get going. Have you brought Dorothea with you? Have you seen Dorothea lately? No. No. Would you like to see Dorothea lately? No. No. Didn't you love Dorothea in your time? No, 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 that was too. Oh, that loud! Yes, we need them louder. Come on, 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 had evolved a theory that if you trained yourself in a certain psychological skill uh, which was uh, um, similar to the Victorian science room, in other words, if you sat around and you sang repetitive songs and you told jokes and you worked in a relaxed atmosphere and got into the spirit, and of got the, into thing. The spirit literally the yes. spirit of the thing, you would produce these um, uh, physical phenomena, the raps and so on. And did Philip... Well, you're jumping the little that aid. We've said to us, well, it's worth the phenomena. Why shouldn't it produce our ghost? And so we decided to try this. Now, it, uh, we, we read the literature very thoroughly, and there are many, many papers on it, and there is a, a philosophical reasoning as to why it works, and it's, this is too short a program for me to explain right. it. But we tried it, and the first, the first um, sitting or two, we were a little bit self-conscious. It's not very easy. We're all serious, scientifically-minded people, really. And to sit around and do all this sort of nonsense... Talk to a table. Talk to a table, wasn't there? We weren't at that stage thinking that we were talking to the table. Mm -hmm. We were surprised when suddenly one night we heard a rap from the table, quite a loud rap. And we thought, you know, what is this? And we sat there very much surprised. And I think it was Dorothy said, well, perhaps it's Philip. And immediately there was another rap. 
And so we said, well, um, rap wants the yes and two for no. Are you Philip? And there was another rap. And so um, this, this did surprise us very much. And so we carried on a little conversation like this, rather nonplussed the first time. Did you get movements and, then rather quickly? Uh, shortly afterwards, the table kind of slid a bit. Right. And of course, then we all accused each other of pushing it, naturally. Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, we, we couldn't believe that it would move. Well, it really itself. happened? You couldn't believe and it yourself? We, oh, no, not at okay. first. And in, in fact, the first few months, we were watching each other like hawks. And uh, if, if anybody's finger moved the slightest bit, you're pushing, you know, this sort of thing. Hello, are you still there? Oh, yeah. 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 He loves his beer, perhaps. Oh, Philip, Philip, if you perform, you should have a nice big pint of beer. Would you like that? Good. Yes. Now, that was the loudest rap of the yeah. evening. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 He loves yeah. beer. He loves beer. Yeah. 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 One hundred bottles of beer. 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 psychological experiment that I've ever taken part in. We've been interested in these physical phenomena for so many years, and I feel that at last we've made a breakthrough. Well, I'd first like to emphasize that this is an important experiment because it's done in a laboratory and it's reproducible. Now, from a psychological point of view, there are several considerations. First is I have to ask myself, what are the psychological conditions necessary to produce this phenomenon? Now, it seems to me that the group is in a childlike creativity. This is brought on by the playing and by the singing uh, and the humor. The group lets their hair down. As opposed to the adult who says, um, this phenomenon can't be done because it's against the laws of physics, the child simply says, if I want to do it, it can be done. Now second, I ask myself, what does this wrapping and the table turning mean symbolically? Is it some type of concentration of energy or uh, is it an elaborate defense mechanism against some deep-seated unconscious conflict? Third, the group is involved in uh, a joint feeling of mutuality. Each member almost intuitively senses the other person and their feelings. And as such, it has important overtones in various group programs. An unusual experiment is about to be filmed in the studios of City TV in Toronto. The stars of this show are eight people sitting around a table. Off to the side on a raised bench are three men observing the experiment. Reverend Lindsay King, psychologist Joelle Whitten, and Dr. George Owen, scientific director for the Toronto Society of Psychical Research. The studio director gives the signal that the experiment may begin. 
participants lay their hands flat on the table and begin calling out a name. Are you there, Philip? I want to see you, Philip. Soon the table begins to rise, as if it had a life of its own, to the surprise of the participants. Shortly afterwards, it seems that Philip no longer wishes to remain in the middle of the room. As he heads toward Reverend King, the table moves with him. And the eight mediums have a hard time keeping their hands in place. Once the table stops, one of the participants suggests to the clergyman that he say hello to Philip. Uh, hello, Philip. The table rises in response. The only problem is that Philip doesn't exist and never did. Philip is an imaginary ghost. In the fall of 1972, Dr. George Owen, director of the Toronto Society of Psychical Research, came up with a unique experiment. George Owen, George Owen was a mathematician and geneticist. He studied at Cambridge University in England. He also had an interest in poltergeists. With the assistance of three men and five women, who had no particular gift for communicating with the spirit world, Dr. Owen conducted one of the most significant experiments in the field of parapsychology in the 20th century. They created Philip, the imaginary ghost. Philip the Imaginary Ghost was a, an attempt by the Toronto Society for Psychical Research to prove that paranormal events could be created without the help of spirits from another plane. Instead of assuming that all physical manifestations were caused by the spirits of the deceased, as spiritualists claimed, Dr. Owen sought a more natural explanation. He wanted to show that living beings, through some mechanism that has yet to be explained, could project their energy onto material objects. Dr. Owen asked the group of eight, as they were called, to imagine the fictitious character with a name, age, gender, and nationality. They came up with Philip, a 30-year-old aristocratic Englishman living in the 17th century at Diddington Manor in Warwickshire, England. Then they invented Philip's life story. He had a wife, Dorothea, who was cold and frigid. He fell in love with Margot, a beautiful young gypsy. Dorothea discovered her husband's infidelity and accused Margot of witchcraft. Margot was condemned and burned at the stake. Heartbroken, Philip took his own life, jumping off the battlements of Diddington Manor. He was only 30 years old. Of all these biographical tidbits, Diddington Manor was the only element that was real. And of course, it had never had an occupant resembling Philip. It took them several months before they had worked out the details of the character they were going to create. So it was 1973, I think, between eight and nine months later that the experiments actually began. They met on a weekly basis in a designated area of the society headquarters, which we called the Philip Room. And no, this room was not used for any other purpose. Had a card table with eight uh, uh, metal chairs around it. And they met once a week for a period of well over 10 years. Philip, are you there, Philip? The group sat around in a circle with a picture of Philip in sort of a meditative state, trying to produce an apparition. And after a year, uh, nothing happened. 
No phenomenon, no apparition. Philip, we're looking for you. Philip, give us a sign, please. At first, the members just developed a friendship with each other. They spent months together, with no occurrences of a psychokinetic or telekinetic nature. Then at some point, they changed their strategy. And suddenly, they began to see results. Like wraps on the table or under it. And the table began to shake and move. These were physical things that could be recorded. Give us a sign, Philip. Philip, are you there, Philip? Within a month or two, Talking to this imaginary ghost, Philip, people started to get raps on the table. In turn, each person would say something like, Good evening, Philip. Hello, Philip. And there would be raps underneath their fingertips. Or if a visitor came in and identified himself and said, Hello, Philip, there'd be a rap underneath the visitor's hand. These raps were audible were tape-recorded and had a characteristic uh, sound envelope. And we've published the results of that um, auditory study. The tapping eventually led to the table being uh, shaken, shaken uh, eventually moving, and eventually actually uh, turning right on its side. Those were really the, uh, the, the proofs that they had, in fact, uh, accomplished their experiment. Philip's manifestations were far from what they had hoped for, but still, the group would ask a question, and Philip would answer. Surprisingly enough, the answers always corresponded to his alleged biography. As the seances progressed, Philip became more enterprising. After a few raps on the table, he would raise it off the ground and make it dance on two or three legs. We were very careful to try and avoid hoaxes. On several occasions, we had what are called doily nights, where we would put doilies, paper doilies, under the hands of the members. And if they tried pushing the table, the doilies would simply slide across the table. So clearly the table movements were not caused by anyone pushing it. And the cameras, uh, when we had those opportunities to videotape it, it was clear that, say, two people sitting on opposite sides of the table, if they both lifted their knees, might lift the table up. It was clear that that was not happening either. Philip, are you there, Philip? Encouraged by the astounding results, other groups around the world tried the same experiment with other imaginary characters. The results were all basically the same. They told themselves they had found the magic formula. La stratégie. A mix of spontaneity combined with weekly meetings and an experimental framework. They thought this was the secret to being able to produce this kind of phenomenon at will. But they realized that this strategy alone was not enough. It also took a lot of tenacity on the part of the members. It would appear that the hereafter is not the only explanation for manifestations of so-called spirits. However, it's been nearly 30 years since the original Philip experiment, and parapsychologists are still just as puzzled now as they were back then as to what was producing these manifestations. It is interesting that the scientific community has never followed the Philip experiment, or indeed many other experiments of a similar nature. Why, I can't answer. I myself am fully convinced that there is a level of psychic ability that is obtainable by us if we knew how to reach it. 
Also, let's face it, the scientific community is always a little behind the human experience. And I think, I don't think it's any more profound than that, really. Whether you approach this from the spiritualist angle or the parapsychological angle, it's impossible to come up with scientific proof, because that proof requires that you not only be able to observe the phenomena and reproduce them at will, you must also come up with a theory to explain the phenomena and predict when they will occur. So since that was impossible in this case, the matter is still not settled. Thank you.